Let us pray together. Father, it's so good for us to be here with you this morning. And we just ask that you bless us this morning, Lord, and bless us as we go out from here later on throughout the week. Lord, we know that there are many things happening in the lives of our fellowship here, Lord, and we do want to pray for those briefly today. We want to pray for Shane and Hannah Johansson uh, and little Ari, who's going for an eye operation tomorrow, Lord. And as uh, young parents, we know how concerned they are about that. And we pray, Lord, that you will give them peace and comfort and also that uh, the surgery will go well tomorrow. And we just ask your blessing on that. We pray for the Moore family this morning, Lord, uh, grieving the loss of uh, Kevin, uh, the father, the grandfather and the great-grandfather. And we just pray for your peace and comfort for them as well, Lord, as they continue to grieve and will do so in the days ahead. We pray for all the others who are struggling with health problems, Lord, and we know that some uh, um, are not well today and haven't been able to come. And we pray for them, Lord, for your healing and for your restoration of their health, but also your restoration of them to our fellowship. And we uh, also pray for those who are struggling with relationship issues at the moment. And we know some, uh, some of our people here are quite stressed and, de- and distressed about relationship issues that are happening at the moment. And we pray for them, for them too, Lord. We pray for your leading and your guidance and even your intervention in these situations, Lord. And finally, Lord, we pray for those who are on holidays and we uh, pray for Sam and Joe and for Kerry and Kewan and we ask for your refreshing and your restoration and your um, preparation within them for the year ahead, Lord. And we ask these things this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Richard. Good morning, everyone. I thought it was going to be one of those mornings when the cat's away, the mice can play. <laughs> but it didn't work out that way. It's good to see Sam and Joe. They... We can still play? We probably will. Okay, so a fresh look at the cross. Although we may have meditated on the cross many times over the years, today we will approach it differently than any other time. This is because although the power and the meaning of the cross never changes, we do. We are not the same person today that we were even yesterday. A famous philosopher put it this way. If you were to step into a river, step out and step back in again, it would not be the same river. For the river you stepped into a few moments ago has flowed on. Nothing is the same. Everything changes. Because of the changes that have taken place in our lives in the past months and years, we too have changed and we will therefore approach the cross as a different person. Our life experiences will bring us to see the cross as a meeting place between ourselves and God as being more real than ever before. So although the cross and the power that flows from it have not changed, 
we have changed. By God's grace, the significance of things heard in the past will become fresher and newer. And although taking a fresh look at the cross may not result in any new revelation, it may result in a new application. David gave us a great example to follow. He said, Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your word. So let's take a fresh look at the cross. As is almost universally known, the standard symbol of Christianity is the cross. Why is this? Well, the cross was chosen by early Christians who wished to make it known that central to the ministry of Jesus was not his birth, his teaching, his miracles, but his death and resurrection. Without that, we could not be reconciled to God. There is no gospel without a cross. To preach the gospel is to portray Christ as the crucified Saviour. It is this that gives the gospel power. The good news of the gospel is that through our Lord's atoning death, we have been given new life. And the cross made it possible, made reconciliation possible between sinful men and women and a holy God. Paul makes it clear in Romans 5 that our sin actually made us enemies with God. But Christ's death has made it possible for us to be reconciled to him. Reconciliation is the meaning of the atonement. The word atonement has a fascinating history. When William Tyndale was translating the New Testament into English in the 16th century so that normal, everyday people could understand the Bible, he came across a lot of difficulties. And particularly baffling was the problem of finding a word that would convey the beauty and wonder of the term Paul used in Greek to describe the reconciling and redeeming work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He couldn't find the right word, so he made one up. Jamming two words together, one, sorry, at and one meant, he coined a word which has been used by theologians ever since. Atonement is a word we can rightly use because it is showing that God's that Christ's atoning death made it possible for a holy God to offer us forgiveness for our sin and for God and humankind to live together in perfect harmony. But forgiveness has to be received before it can take effect in our lives. John 5 verse 24 says, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. And John 1 verse 12 says, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. How does a person become a child of God? Salvation is not the result of human endeavour but of human surrender. Christ comes in only when he is invited. And how do we invite him into our lives? Someone once said, when I open my eyes, the light comes in. When I open my lungs, the air comes in. When I open my heart to Christ, Christ comes in.
If you have not already done so, will you not open your heart to Christ today? Just let him in. In preparation for the cross, Jesus began to teach his disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things and that he must be killed. Mark says the disciples did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. Matthew adds these words, and the disciples were filled with grief. But this did not deter Jesus. If you read through Mark, you've got to be impressed by God's steadfast, Jesus' steadfast determination to press on towards his final hours and death on a cross. Straight, he was determined. After his death, about his death, let me say, about his death, John 3 verse 14 says that just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And this, this is a whole part of a conversation that Jesus is having with Nicodemus by telling him the need of a new birth. To enter the kingdom of God, a person must receive the life of God, says Jesus. In other words, he or she must be born again. But how is this divine life brought within the reach of sinners? For the divine life to become ours, the Son of Man had to die. The Son of God had to die. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. In this statement, Jesus is alluding to the manner in which he would die, as well as making the point that his incarnation is not enough. His miracles are not enough. His ministry is not enough. It is, it is his death that brings life. Revelation 13 verse 8 tells us that the Lamb of God was slain before the creation of the world. Before the cross was an act in time, it was a fact in eternity. In the mind of, the, in the mind of God, the cross was not an afterthought, but was something carefully considered and planned before the world was made. There was a cross in the heart of God long before there was a cross on the hill in the Calvary. When the matter of sin being present in the universe that God has made, when this is discussed, there's two questions that are often asked. Firstly, couldn't God have made a universe in which sin was an impossibility? Yeah, he could have done so. But just imagine what kind of world it would have been, a world in which creatures would have been like robots just responding to God's commands. The other question that's often asked is, couldn't God remove by miracles the results of every wrong choice that his creatures make? If God did that, then choice would cease to exist. Free will would be meaningless in a world where God corrected the consequences of our actions at every moment. Our wills are free. We are free to obey God and we are free to disobey him. The fact that the cross has been on the heart of God through all eternity is amazing. What incredible love for sinners that surges through the heart of God. And what a struggle must have gone in our Lord's heart as he wrestled with the thought that he would be hammered to a cross. 
It would have been hard enough to know that he was drawing near to the hour of his death, but to contemplate the agony of having his weary body stretched on those timbers of torture must have affected him more deeply than any of us could ever imagine. He didn't want to die. He prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, but not my will be done, but your will. In agony he hung on the cross while insults were hurled at him. He saw the distress on the face of his mother and watched his faithful friend and disciple John at her side. After hours of intense pain, Jesus cried, it is finished. I just want to share something that happened when I was typing this up. It actually brought me to tears when I was starting to think about what Jesus endured on the cross. And I, and I prayed aloud in front of my computer and said, Jesus, Jesus, how did you endure all that pain? And he actually answered me and he said, I wasn't consumed by my pain. I was consumed by my love. And I thought, wow, Jesus, he had all power. He chose to not be consumed by his pain. He chose to think about love and his love for us. And that's why he was doing what he was doing. We may ask, why is it necessary for Christ to die such a brutal and violent death? There was a famous London preacher who answered this question with a question. Could Jesus have exposed sin in all its foul horror if he died in his bed or by accident or by disease? It is one of the tragedies of human life that we fail to recognise the sinfulness of sin. When speaking of sin, we use such euphemisms as mistakes, faults, errors of judgement and so on. So what is sin? It is the evil in our nature. That is sin. Look at the cross and we can see before our eyes the truth that human nature is so wicked that when the evil in the human heart is fully expressed, it is capable of nailing God to a cross. If Jesus had not risen from the dead, then no one would ever have a hope of their sins being forgiven and have the hope of eternal life. Since the resurrection, Jesus Christ is now able to fulfill his promise where two or more come together in his name. There he is in their midst. He is with us. He is with us right here, right now, in this very moment. His love is all around us. You can actually feel it. It's almost tangible if you stop. Ephesians 2 verse 4 tells us, Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. God's primary motive in sending his son to die upon a cross was love. 1 John 4.10 says, This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. The main motive when planning our salvation was unconditional and everlasting love. The main thrust of the gospel message must always be found in the words of John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. 
This text has been described as the high watermark of Revelation. Nothing we can ever know about God is greater than this. We can't escape this truth. God really does love us. 1 John 4.16 says, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. John tells us that God is love. He doesn't say God has love or that God is loving. Is loving. He simply says God is love. God can do nothing without love being the driving force behind his actions. Modern-day psychiatrists recognise that the greatest need in man is to be loved. This is what men and women long for. They need to hear it. Take the love of God out of the Christian message and you take the heart out of it. It's like removing the sun out of the sky. It needs to be said, God did not love us because Jesus died, but Jesus died because God loved us. We need to put away the strange and foolish idea that Jesus had to die before God could love us. The heart of the Father is genuine love, a love that was not the result of the cross, but the reason for it. It's good and encouraging to turn for a moment now and consider the benefits, if you want to call it blessings. I was thinking of which word to use, um, the, the benefits or blessings which Christ's death has given for humankind. So I've chosen the word benefit. So the first benefit of Christ's death for us is freedom. Freedom. Even saying that word sounds good. In chapter 7 of Romans, Paul tells us that we are a slave to sin. This means that every human being, in a moral sense, is a slave. No one can commit sin and be its master. Sin eventually masters them. Do you remember how the slave trade was abolished? The abolition of the slave trade was accomplished because in the heart of a man named William Wilberforce, there burned a passion to set them free. And if you ask how it is that men and women bound by the chains of evil habit can be set at liberty, then here is the answer. By means of the atoning death of our Lord Jesus Christ, liberty of soul comes through the Son of God and there is no other source. A second benefit of Christ's atoning death is the character that it builds. True character, however, has to be built in cooperation with Christ and the Holy Spirit. Paul gives us the key to this in the passage in Philippians 3, where he says, that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but that which is through faith in Christ. Now, with the help of the Holy Spirit, that righteousness should be developed in us until the character of Christ can be seen in us. Another way in which Christ's death benefits us is that it produces peace. The purpose of his coming into the world was to make peace between men and God and men and men. Remember the song of the angels in Bethlehem, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men on whom his favour rests. The architect of peace is none other than God himself and he came to earth in a human body to bring peace 
to a sin-ravaged world, to reconcile himself to all things. In Christ we have a peace that remains no matter what the circumstances. Another benefit that comes to us through the cross of Christ is the dignity it confers. In the beginning of Revelation chapter 1, John is bringing a greeting of peace and, and grace from Jesus Christ, whom John says Jesus loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and it made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his Father. Jesus has made us to be a kingdom. What great dignity our God has bestowed on us by lifting us from the mire of sin, putting upon us a robe of righteousness, placing a golden crown on our head and giving us the privilege of priestly access before his throne. Are you feeling a bit overwhelmed today? Are you feeling a little downtrodden today? Then lift your head up. You are a priest and king. Another benefit of the cross is the victory it gains. The cross has ended Satan's power over humanity and has provided us with three mighty weapons by which we can overcome the enemy. The blood of the lamb, the word of our testimony and the sacrificial spirit of the cross which is spoken about in Revelation 12. Satan's accusations are all met by the blood of of Jesus Christ. This is well illustrated by an often repeated story concerning Martin Luther, which tells of one day the devil came to Martin Luther and said, you are a filthy sinner. Look, here is a list of all your sins. Martin Luther said, is that all? No, replied the devil, here are many more. As the long list was placed before him, Luther picked up a pen and wrote across the bottom of the list, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, cleanses us from all sin. The devil, it is said, made a hasty retreat, but not before Luther threw the inkwell at him. (laughs) The ink stain apparently is still on the wall in the house where Martin Luther used to live. It's a simple tribute to the fact that Satan has to withdraw when presented with the claims of Christ's atoning blood. A further benefit that comes to us by the way of the cross of Christ is the heaven it produces. In the beginning of Revelation 21, it's one of my favourite chapters in the whole Bible. I usually always cry when I read it, so I'll try not to today. John says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. The question we now ask ourselves is this. Do we allow the truth of Christ's atoning death merely to remain in our minds as a doctrine or do we invite the Holy Spirit to make it a dynamic force in our heart? For the doctrine of the cross to be of any value to us, it must be followed by practice. The learning of spiritual truth must flow into the living of a spiritual life. 
And how do we do that? By recognising that the only way to look at the universe is through the cross of Christ. At the cross, we see a God who entered our world, took our sufferings on himself and suffered all that we suffer and much more. And now our universe holds steady. The cross saves us from pessimism and despondency by showing us that it is possible to use the pain and suffering that exists to achieve noble and redemptive purposes. The cross is light, the only light, for it shows that God can take the worst and make it into the best. He took the sin of the whole world and in one glorious act of self-sacrifice bore it all away. When you and I learn to look at life through the cross, then we can move forward confidently, trusting him and committing our lives to his all-conquering power. In this way, the principle of the cross enters our lives. Also, we must accept, as Jesus taught, that every follower of his must be prepared to take up a cross. We must recognise that a cross will arise where our concerns and Christ's concerns meet. And this is a great challenge. Our task is then to decide whose concerns are going to hold sway. If we really want to follow Jesus, then we must face the fact that we become personally and socially involved with a world of sin and a cross awaits us. It is inevitable. Hebrews 12 verse 2 encourages us, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Jesus is our example. Jesus was able to bear the cross because he belonged, he looked beyond it and saw what it would accomplish. And the joy of his achievement was far greater than the depth of his pain. So, so much more could be said, but time restricts us. So we go back to where we started. We may have meditated on the cross many times over the years, but today we have looked at the cross differently because today we are different. Our life experiences are constantly changing. Although the cross and the power that flows from it have not changed, we may well find that after today we are changed, not because maybe because as a result of any new revelation, but rather as a result of a new application.